0: This morning we're going to come to the last section in Paul's letter, in which he's dealing with justification. He's going to move on the next three chapters and deal with the blessing of sanctification in Christ. But here he is going to really give us the how, the, the, the essence of how this works. Um, I may have told you this before. I don't don't remember, but in my fifteen or so years of pastoring, I have. I have pastored people in, in all sorts of vocations. And the ones that have given me the greatest challenge, not, not in a sinful way, but are the engineers. So if you're an engineer, this passage is for you. This is the nuts and the bolts of justification. You can't go down any deeper than where Paul's gonna take you. This is the atoms. This is the, the the smallest particles of how justification works. It's the mechanics. I'm going to use a big word. It's the architectonic principle of the Bible. It it structures everything. It's almost like Paul knew there would be believing engineers in the church. And it's almost as if Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to give you one more thing, and that's it. We're not going any deeper. And so we're looking this morning at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 down to uh, verse 21, a very difficult portion of scripture, and yet one that also has this sweet simplicity to it. Here, notice that Paul is connecting this section to what has just gone before. He's told us that Christ died for us when we were ungodly, when we were enemies, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless, um, at just the right time, Christ died for God's enemies. And that's a glorious and comforting thought. And now Paul connects this section to that, and he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience The many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever one of the saddest features of life in this world, one of the saddest things that we see all around us is that there are billions of people, billions of people on this planet who don't know where they came from, who don't know why they are the way they are, and who don't know what they really need. It's one of the great, tragic uh, features of life in this fallen world. A few uh, months ago, I was traveling in my flight was canceled late at night in Charlotte, and they put me up in what was the most depressing hotel I've ever stayed in, and so I was walking up, and I was checking in, and I ended up getting in a conversation with a man outside who was a musician and was traveling around uh, performing, and, and he wanted, when he found out I was a pastor, he wanted to talk about Christendom, and I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. And so he, he sought to wax eloquently on what he thought he knew about Constantine and why we have what is largely called Christendom and what that is and, and, and the features of Judeo-Christian ethics in our society. And I thought, this is, this is fascinating. But as we went on and he asked me more and more questions, it, it became very evident that he had no idea what Christianity really was that he didn't know what the gospel was and at the very end of our conversation he asked me a question and I said well, it's, it's simple it's because we are fallen and we live in a fallen world and we need Christ and he said, fallen, a fallen world and I thought, wow we live in a world where there's death misery decay, suffering, all around us and men and women see all of the fallenness and, and deny, suppress, and live their lives in complete ignorance of where we came from, why we are the way we are, and what we need. Now, Paul is going to deal with those things in this section. It's not exactly why Paul is writing what he writes in Romans 5, 12 through 21, but it is certainly there. Paul says, notice verse 12, therefore, just as... Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Now, uh, I, I've got to tell you this this morning. This is a difficult passage because Paul does something very unique here. He, he starts this section in verse 12, and then he takes a big hiatus in verses 13 through 17, if you could put parentheses around that. It's called an anacoluthon. It's like he forgets where he was going, and then he comes back to it in verse 18 and following. So I want us to just look at this this morning. If you read this without that parenthetical section, verse 12 and then verse 18, notice, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Paul's essentially setting out here two men. It's as if been said it's as if he looks at the world and all he sees is two men. It's all there is in the world. There is the first man, there's Adam, and there is the second man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And all of human history is structured by that. And the way in which justification works and the way in which God has ordered things so that those who are under the condemnation of and judgment of God by nature because of Adamson, the way in which they can be accepted by God, is because God has ordered all of human history uh, in light of these two men as representative men. This is where our Reformed history gets the, the phraseology, federal theology. This is Paul giving us representative theology. Um, we understand what a federal government is. We, we most of us... Uh, like to moan and grumble about whoever is president, and yet, uh, and we can, and we can run around. And we can put bumpers. Not my president, but he is. I'm sorry. He represents us. Um, and and yet, this is a greater representation. This is not by election. This is by God's arrangement and appointment. And God has purposed Adam to represent all of the new humanity, the newly created humanity. And and then, by God's grace, He has sent. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, to represent the new redeemed humanity. Very simple and yet also many complicated things here. Now, to help us this morning, I want us to consider just three things. One, I want us to consider the two men. And then I want us to consider the two acts of these two men. And then I want us to consider the two outcomes of these two men. Two men, two acts, and two outcomes. Now, Paul is, no doubt, trying to answer some question here. It's not easy to understand what question Paul is trying to answer. There are probably two options to what he is trying to do here in answering what might be objections or questions that are raised. One of those is connected to what has just gone before. He's just told us Christ died for us at the right time, in the fullness of time, the fullness of redemptive history. Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the question might be, okay, Paul, you're saying that in the act of the Son of God dying for ungodly people in the fullness of time, you say that's going to affect all people for all time in some way. How can the death of one man in time impact all mankind after him and us today so long after him? That's a, that's a big question. How can, how can all of human history, I could put it this way too, be impacted and affected by the act of one man, Jesus Christ? Another question he may be seeking to answer is the question related to the depravity of all men. He's told us that all mankind, Jew and Gentile, all are. All are dead in sins. All are unrighteous. There are none righteous. There are none that do good. There are none that seek God. Um, we are all thoroughly corrupt. That's why we need a savior. And, and yet the question might be, well, isn't there even one that's not? Is there not even one exception to that? Um, there are even some theologians that Paul has in here, uh, think, think Paul has in here mind the question of infants. Are infants not Innocent, And Paul's going to say, all die. This is a very powerful argument we'll talk about it at some point, that uh, infants die because they're fallen in Adam. Um, that's why death comes to all mankind. Um, it doesn't come just because of personal sin. It comes because of the representative sin of Adam. And so Paul is no doubt trying to answer some of these questions. But he first tells us about these two men. He doesn't name Adam in verse 12. Notice, just as sin came into the world through one man. Very interesting. He, he's not really trying to discuss the historicity of Adam. He, he takes that for granted, he, he, as did Jesus. By the way, if, if you are one who has wondered about that, um, Jesus and the apostles absolutely believed that Adam was a historical figure. And, and I would put it this way this morning. If we don't believe in a historical Adam, We can't believe in a historical Christ. If you look at Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3, it goes all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. And here, the Apostle Paul is presuming and and no doubt uh, assumes rightly that Adam was the first of humanity and, and that he was the one man and that God did something representative with him. It's very interesting. He doesn't mention Eve. Even though she was the first to sin, he focuses rather on who it was that brought sin, and then as sin came into the world, death came into the world and spread to all men, who it was that brought that into the world. I've already told you that um, the apostle is trying to help us understand representative theology. Um, I used to uh, witness, I've told you on the boardwalk in New Jersey, and. I would have myriads of people tell me they don't believe in a historical Adam. They don't don't believe that they're sinners. And I would say to them, you know, well, I know I'm a sinner. And I also know that I didn't choose to be born this way. And I also know that my mother didn't choose to bring me into the world as sinner. And so somewhere we have to understand this transmission of sin natures and corruption The guilt of Adam's sin. All of these things coming down. Um, You know, I've talked to you a lot about circumcision as the old covenant sign. and, And it was that bloody sign of judgment where God promised to either cleanse the filth and cut away the filth of the hearts of men, the old natures. Or, or we would be cut off in his judgment. And, and it went on the, the male reproductive organ because it showed that corruption passes generation to generation to generation, starting with Adam. And the only way for God to deal with that, there has to be a bloody judgment. It points to the cross. But it points back to where that corruption comes from and how that corruption moves person to person to person. There are none exempt. Notice the way Paul says this. Just as sin came into the world through one man. And then notice notice verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass. And then notice uh, down in verse 17. If because of One man's trespass. And then verse 18, therefore as one, trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now, before we talk about the acts, I want to talk about the glory of what Paul is doing. He is teeing up for us and helping us understand how it is that Jesus can be the second man. If the one man brought all this into the world, if he represented us, if, if he failed in the mission that God gave him, if he failed in the purposes and plans that God gave him in his disobedience, then there has to be a second man to represent us. There has to be a second representative. That's our greatest need. Um, Thomas Goodwin, the, the Puritan, famously put it this way. Paul speaks of these two men as if there had never been any more men in the world nor were ever to be from time to come except these two. And why? Because, Goodwin says, these two between them had all the rest of the sons of men hanging on their girdle. What a great illustrative thought. It's as if there are just two men. That's it. Just two men. Adam and Christ. And every single man, woman, boy, and girl is either hanging on the belt of one or the other of them. We're either united to Adam or we are united to Christ. By nature, we are all united to Adam. By grace, we are united to Christ. That union is unbreakable. It is a fixed union. It is not one that we can volitionally break ourselves from. If, if someone's not in union with Christ and they're in union with Adam, they can't do anything about that. I remember feeling this as an unbeliever, and maybe you have, that I was in a place of absolute despair knowing that I couldn't save myself. I couldn't change myself. I couldn't help myself. I remember having a conversation with a woman at a bar when I was 23 years old and said, I I just can't do anything to help myself in anything. I I felt that union with Adam. Um... And yet Paul is wanting us to understand the greatness of the grace of God, the free gift of the grace of God through the, notice the end of verse 15, the one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ. You know, in philosophy, I don't want to bore you, but in philosophy, the great uh, debate throughout human history, all the way back, the Greek philosophers, Heraclitus and uh, Parmenides and all, all of the early philosophers all the way up to the linguistic philosophers, Derrida and, and all of the philosophers of the, the 20th and 21st century, the great question has always been the question of the one and the many. Um, how can we live in a world that has things that seem static and yet are fluid? How can there be one and yet many? It's the great question. Um, unity and diversity. And and the answer very simply, is that God is a triune God. He is the one God in three persons. He's created a world that answers those great questions. But it's interesting. Here, Paul is saying there is a great theological construct of the one and the many with Adam and those he represented and Jesus and those he represented. It's beautiful. The one man, his sin affected the many. The second man, his righteous act impacts the many in a greater way. Now, you know, we see this principle even in the Old Testament. It's very important that we get this is not new. It's actually strewn throughout God's revelation and redemptive history. You might think about David and Goliath and that representative warfare. Remember, Israel gathers on one plane, the Philistines gather on another. This is the clash between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And Goliath is out there taunting David. ...or taunting the the Israelites... ...and David's brothers are mocking him... ...but none of them will go to battle... ...and he's calling them down to representative warfare... ...whoever wins that battle wins it for his people... ...and David goes and David represents God's people... ...David is the representative warrior... ...and he delivers Israel... ...and he defeats Goliath... ...he, everyone wins because David wins... ...and because Goliath falls... ...all of the Philistines lose... ...in the battle and are defeated. That's a picture, really, of what Paul is saying here... ...of these two representative figures. And then you have in the Old Testament... ...the the picture of the great high priest... ...the high priest going into the most holy place... ...on the Day of Atonement... ...to make atonement for the people. And, And what's he doing? He's representing the people he has on his ephod... ...on his breastplate. He has the names of the children of Israel. And what he is doing... In that place where he alone can go as the one man before God to intercede for the people after sacrificing for them, he is representing them. That's that's the picture. Jesus is the great warrior and the great high priest of his church, and he is the last, he is the second man, he is the last Adam. Um, Paul will develop this in more detail in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 21 to 22 and 40 to 45. He'll, he'll develop that out and talk about uh, the first man being the man of dust and the, the last man being the, the, the Lord from heaven. And, and that is so central to our understanding of Christianity. If we don't get this, we don't get Christianity in a really consistent way. This is, this is, I can say this this morning, this is everything. I mentioned this is the architectonic principle that holds all of scripture together and all of life together. The reason people don't understand where they came from, what they are, and what they need is because they don't get this. They don't receive this. They don't believe this or understand this. This is the only thing that makes sense of life. When I would witness to people and they would bring up Infants, I would say to them, well, you tell me why, why, why do infants die? And they would say they get sick or this happens. And I said, no, that's how they die. That's not why they die. This is why we all die. This is why death spreads to all men. Because the one man represented us. Well, I want us to look more carefully at the two acts. There is both comparison and there is contrast. Don't miss that. That's part of what makes this section so difficult. There is a comparison between Adam and Christ. In fact, Paul is going to say here that, that Adam, notice the end of verse 14, Adam was a type of the one to come. He was a stamp. He was an impress. There was there's something about him that typified the one to come, and it was that representative nature that God built into creation Adam as a type of the one to come because God's plan was that Adam would fall and that the other would come and the last man would come and undo what Adam did and do what Adam didn't do. That's, that's really where Paul's going, to the acts of these two men. And in the comparison, you, you have very simply what I've already said. You have um, the, the representative acts. Notice... Um, the one trespass. Notice verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Notice this. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation to all. Um, God gave Adam the task. You've heard me say this. To, to um, extend the borders of that garden temple. Out throughout the world, and to fill that garden temple with righteous image bearers, he was to be a vine from which righteous branches went out and filled that uh, global garden temple of people representing God. He was, he was God's vicegerent. He was the one that God put here to bear His image. The way when a king comes into uh, and, and conquers a land, he would in the ancient Near East, he would set up a statue of himself. Like Nebuchadnezzar and the kings did. God was putting his image there. And, and yet God did something unique with Adam. He, he entered into what theologians have called the covenant of works. And, and he, he, he put one tree off limits. He, he said to Adam, you can have everything. It's all yours. But that you will remember that I am the creator and you are the creature. You cannot eat. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, in dying, you will die. Now, Adam was supposed to pass that probation. When the evil one came in to tempt them, he should have withstood the temptation. And he would have passed that probation. He would have, in a sense, merited life for himself and all his people, and we would have all been confirmed in holiness as he represented us. But in the one temptation... Adam failed, and as C.S. Lewis puts it in the preface of Dante's, or I'm sorry, Milton's *Paradise Lost*, he says that um, Eve, and by way of implication, Adam, bowed and worshipped a vegetable instead of God. Why? Why? It sounds harsh. Why would? Why would God bring death and condemnation to all people because Adam ate some fruit because he worshipped a vegetable? over the infinitely blessed God who gives life and breath and all things to all people, who owns our breath in his hands and all of our ways. Um, Anselm, famously, in his uh, book, Why the God-Man, in his interactions with his assistant, Boso, who asks him, he doesn't get, he doesn't get why there had to be this severe punishment and, and condemnation, and, and, and Anselm says something along the lines of, oh, you, you don't get it. He says, um, one sin against an infinite, infinite and eternal God deserves infinite and eternal judgment, because it's against the object of the one we've sinned against. And what Adam did is he looked at all the beauty, all the blessing, all the bounty, himself included. And he said, I will choose to disobey the God who gave me all this blessing and all this bounty. I will be God. I will put myself in a role that God has not given me. And so he failed. He failed in the task. And yet, you know, the glory of what Paul is saying here is that God has provided another man to do another work. And this is really where the contrast is because uh, it, it's, it's the comparison is there that Adam was a representative type. What he did, he did, and it impacted everyone from him. But, but the contrast runs through this. Notice, again, verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And then notice this. Notice verse 19. As by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now what, what Paul is saying is that where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. You know, it's it's marvelous how God has structured all of redemptive history that that Adam falls in a garden and he brings all of the sin and death and condemnation on all of us because of his disobedience yet Christ begins his work of suffering in a very real sense in a garden and and he presses through all the temptations in the wilderness and that wilderness was represented representative of what the world has become because of the one man's disobedience and and yet he withstood as the last Adam when when Satan came and tempted our Lord Jesus and said bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world will be yours he was essentially saying to Jesus just say not my will but yours be done The evil one was saying to Jesus, just say, not my will, but yours be done. Say that to me. And Christ succeeded where Adam failed. There's this marvelous parallel of the two works. You'll remember that in 1 John, when John talks about temptation and and sin in the world, he says, he calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And and you'll know that when we go back to Genesis and... um, And especially with regard to Eve, but also true for Adam, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the eyes, she saw that it it was good for food, the the lust of the flesh, and, and that it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And then when Jesus is in the wilderness as the last Adam and he's being tempted, he undergoes the exact same categories. He's hungry, 40 days fasting. We can't even imagine what our Lord felt, the weakness of his human nature, the weakness of his flesh, feeling very powerfully these temptations working on him. The lust of the flesh. If if you're hungry, just turn these stones into bread. The the lust of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and the pride of life. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the temple and show people who you are. And our Lord, as the last Adam, withstood those temptations. Listen, his temptation in the wilderness was not first and foremost to teach you how to resist temptations. It does that. It is not first and foremost, Jesus obeyed, now here's how you obey. It is Christ obeyed as the last Adam, as the second man, to conquer the one that conquered the first man. You know, as I preach this to you, I I literally am thinking, it is remarkable that everyone on the planet that hears this doesn't believe this. It makes sense of everything. It is the nuts and the bolts. It is the, this is for the engineers. This is how it works. And praise God, that's how it works. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about the obedience of the one man? Notice there again in verse 19, by the one man's obedience, the many... Will be made righteous. Now, there have been lots of debates. Is, is Paul talking about the one act of the cross? And is that the only act of Christ obedience that counts and matters? Well, ultimately, that is what matters. Remember, when the Apostle Paul talks about Christ obedience in, in Philippians 2, he says that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The whole life of our Lord Jesus was suffering, the whole life of our Lord Jesus was obedience. And I think when he talks about the one act of the righteous man, the one righteous act, he's talking about the whole of Christ's life as the one man, the second man, the last Adam. Theologians often divide this between the active and the passive righteousness of Christ. That he obeys perfectly, sinlessly through his life. That's the act of obedience. He then is nailed to the tree. That's the passive obedience. It makes up the whole of the obedience of Jesus. I think when Paul says here, the one man's obedience, he's talking about the totality of our Lord's um, life, death, messianic ministry, all that he is, all that he did. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, what it means for the Lord Jesus to be the second man and the last Adam. The ultimate horizon of what Jesus has come to do is not simply to provide pardon and forgiveness, but to consummate on our behalf the divine plan that was originally given to Adam. You see? What Jesus did was, again, he did, I've heard it put this way many times, he did what Adam failed to do, And he undid everything that Adam did by his one act of obedience. That's awesome. That's awesome. This is how Paul can look out and, as it were, only see two people. And everyone else related to them. Um, Before we look at the outcomes, I want to say this this morning. This is also exceedingly humbling. When you really get this, there's no place for pride. There's no place for measuring yourself against other people and thinking that you've made greater advancements than others. If they knew what I knew, they would do what I do. We say that. Sorry for my Eminem voice there, but, um, but, but, but that's that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem with with us by nature in Adam is that we we think we can do it on our own. This is why, by the way, I think. I think Paul brings up the issue of the law when he starts that parenthesis at the beginning of this. And he says, there was no law from Adam to Moses, and and sin is not imputed where there is no law. Remember, he's still talking to the Jews who were trusting in the law and thought their law-keeping made them better than others and that God would accept them because of that. And so he says, listen, before there ever was a law for you to think you were keeping it well enough, good enough, to, to please God... Death reigned because of sin, because of Adam's sin. It, it, it levels the playing field for everyone. I was reminded this week of several things that we heard over the years from Tim Keller and from Harry Reader. And, you know, I love how Tim Keller always used to say, you know, you think you can keep God's standard. You don't even keep your own standards. I mean, that's that's so true. We we say, I'm gonna do better. I'm not gonna do that again. We don't even keep our own standards. And so this, this humbles us, the two acts of the two men. In one sense, and I, I'm gonna say this very carefully, I want to be very careful. It it essentially takes us out of the equation, except that we are represented, and it puts all the focus on their two acts. Do you see that? That's what Paul's saying. Now, why is Paul doing this? Because he wants us to understand how justification works. He really wants us now in the third place to understand the outcome of these two acts. Now, um, I'm not going to go through this passage. There's a whole lot here, but, but notice this. Let's look at the outcomes here. Um, let's look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, let me say this this morning. He's not saying everyone is going to be saved. He's talking to all mankind who were represented by the last Adam for whom he died. Those who... Were chosen in him before the foundations of the world, those who he bled and died for, those he would redeem in time, those who will trust in him, for believers. He's writing to the church, but he's explaining the one and the many and the impact that the one had on the many. And he tells us here that the one act of disobedience of the one man, Adam, led to condemnation and death for all men. But the one act of obedience led to the justification of the many. Now, here's where the contrast comes. Do you see this? What he's saying is what Jesus did as the last Adam is so much greater than what the first Adam did. The impact and the outcome of what Christ does is so much greater that by one act of obedience, many who are sinful and disobedient and under the condemnation because of the one act of the first man, those many are justified. That's awesome. Don't miss that. One act led to condemnation for all and death and judgment. The one act of righteousness by the one man, Christ, leads to justification for the many. Um, You know, Paul is going to sum this up in what is one of the greatest verses in the Bible I want you to focus there with me on verse 21 I'm sorry verse 20 now the law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more you have this you have this structure you have one man sin death condemnation And then you have the parallel, one man, one righteous act by the last Adam, leads to grace and righteousness in life. Where where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Paul is really going to tell us here, essentially, that God's grace, and we love singing these hymns. I love singing these hymns. Grace greater than all my sin. Oh, Don't let anybody tell you. That'll lead you to lawlessness. Look, Paul says that. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. I want to read you several quotes here. John Calvin. Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Somebody summarized that in a different way. Christ is far better at saving than we are at sinning. Oh, that's good. That's good news, y'all. Christ is much better at saving than we are at sinning. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said we have this for a foundation truth. There is more mercy. We could say here more grace in Christ than sin in us. You see, he not only forgives us all of our sins, past, present, and future. When he is nailed to the cross, Paul says he, he, that the handwriting of requirements that was against us was nailed to the tree with him. He not only forgives our sins, he not only breaks the power of sin for believers, we're going to hear about that in chapter 6, right after this, but he clothes us in his righteousness, and he causes his grace to reign in our lives unto eternal life. There's these rival reigns that's been said here. There's sin reigning unto death and condemnation. There's grace reigning in righteousness unto eternal life. Isn't that marvelous? If you're in Christ, you you are not under the dominion of the law. You're not. You're not under the condemnation of the law. The law can neither justify you nor condemn you. That's what what Westminster Larger Catechism 97 says. Believers are neither justified nor condemned by the law. It does not reign over you. Grace reigns. We're under grace, not under law. And that means that the grace of Christ that, that covers our sins also leads us and guides us, and it reigns in our lives. Um, it will mean, we'll see this in chapters 6, 7, and 8, it will mean that while we will never, and I'm going to quote Harry Reader. Here's my favorite Harry quote, while in this life you won't be sinless, hopefully you will sin less. So Harry's little alliterations and whatnot. <laughs> um, but, but it's because grace is reigning because we're united to the one man, the second man, the last Adam. That's, that's, that means that, the, and I'm going to leave you with this this morning, that means that the totality of your life should be structured intellectually and that our hearts should be impacted. This is not just to stretch our minds intellectually, but to govern our thoughts about who we are and, and what reigns over us. If we're in Christ, God's grace that superabounds over the sins of all his people reigns over us. Um, that, that means when I feel condemned because of my sin, because of the law of God, and we go back to Christ and, and we live in light of what he's done, that our consciences are quieted. His blood, you know, I love the way the writer of Hebrews says this, we have our consciences sprinkled. With the blood of Jesus from dead works to serve the living and true God. That, that God's grace is the only thing that reigns over us if we're believers. I'm gonna say that again. God's grace is the only thing that reigns over you if you're a believer. And, and Paul has gone to the greatest lengths to say it is all by grace. Here he uses the language free gift over and over the gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. The free gift. There are myriads that will try to tell you, yeah, but, even in Reformed churches, listen to me, Martin Lloyd-Jones was right, if if Paul is going to actually say, in chapter 6, verse 1, let's look at that quickly, what shall we say then, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? Now, Paul has to answer that question to that objection, because he's saying God's grace is so free and so unmerited that you can do nothing for it. And that you, you don't deserve it. And that he's done everything for you. That the charge of antinomianism. That there's no law. That you don't have to obey. That that charge will always be there when this is preached. I will argue with people. That Lloyd-Jones was right about that. God's grace is so great. And so large. And so free in Christ. And so much greater. I want to read that Calvin quote to you again. Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. What an awesome thought. You know, Augustine called it the Felix Culpa, the blessed fall. It was good, if I can say that carefully, that Adam fell because what Christ did was so much greater. And for all eternity, as the last Adam, the Lord Jesus is going to display before the eyes of his people the greaterness of what he's done for all eternity. Um, Harry Reader, Tim Keller, they're experiencing the result in part, not the full consummation, but in part right now, what Christ did for them as the last Adam. I'm going to read you this quote. It can be misused, but I want to leave you with it. I think it's helpful In light of everything else Paul says in Romans 6-8, but Tim Keller often said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's true. You You are more accepted by the Lord Jesus than you realize because we're still here struggling with our sin. We still feel the battles. We still feel the evil one attacking us. Somebody this morning said to me, I I felt spiritual warfare. We feel that in this life. We feel our flaws, our failures, the world, the flesh, the devil. And yet none of that changes. None of our failings change what Christ has done or diminish the benefit that we have in Christ. Now that means, and I'm going to leave you with this, that means that it should drive us to the Lord Jesus that we would, we would cling firmly to him. That we would trust solely and, and wholeheartedly in him. That where, when we feel ourselves weighed down, we would say, Lord, I know that you obeyed for me. I know that you have made me righteous. Cause your grace to reign in my life. Those are things we ought to be praying. Make me to know your grace reigning in my life. I hope if you have never heard this or seen this, you'll be, you'll be seriously thinking about it, that you'll be meditating on it, that you'll see your need for a second representative man who, who overcomes death, who overcomes sin, who overcomes condemnation and judgment by his one righteous act, by his obedient life, his atoning death. If you're a believer, I hope that you'll draw comfort from this, that you'll rest in the fact that you are forever united to Jesus. Listen, if you're a believer, I want to say this this morning, your union with Jesus is so fixed and so immutable, can never be undone, that even when you die and your body is put in the ground, our forefathers said that the bodies of believers... Still being united to Christ when they're laid in the ground, are united to Him until the last day when He comes and raises us. That even the lifeless body of believers are savingly and forever united to Jesus. That's awesome. It's true for you if you're a believer this morning. I hope that you'll be comforted in that. And I hope that you'll be motivated to live in light of God's reigning grace through righteousness, unto eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, how much we need to hear these things recurrently, how often we forget these things. We pray that you would indeed renew our minds with them. We pray that you would uh, remind us, as you have this morning on a daily basis of what we are in Adam and yet what you have made us in Christ. We thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, the second man, the last Adam. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless life. We thank you for your atoning and wrath propitiating death in our place as our representative. We thank you that you are the great high priest who represents us forever whoever lives to intercede for us lord would you give us believing hearts would you comfort us in these truths would you help us to be a people who live our lives knowing that your grace reigns in our life and would you motivate us to live for you out of that we do pray our god for those that may not know you that today they would know the saving grace of the lord jesus the free gift that they would be united to him And so our Father in heaven, we pray that you would do these things for us and in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.